Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Va'ira. I appeared. The address is Shomot, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, through chapter 9, verse 35. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Torah teacher, Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on January 18th of 2006. Note, all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern, Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai loheinu melech haolam asher bachar banu mikol ha'amim v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha'torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, I hope you're enjoying the podcasts. This week's parasha is named Va'era, which means I appeared. Of course, the I in that sentence is Hashem, our God, the Lord. And this week, uh, the portion... And last week's portion are going to continue this ongoing thought about God appearing and and revealing his name to Moshe, first of all, and then later on um, giving that revelation to the rest of his people. So I'm going to reference last week's portion in this teaching. Now, if you've not heard last week's podcast or if you've not read the commentary, I strongly encourage you to study them both together. Last week's commentary, Parashat Shemot, the first parashat out of the book of Exodus, and this week's commentary, in my opinion, go hand in hand, especially because of the opening pasuk, the opening verse in each commentary. The opening sentence this week should cause us to wonder what the Holy One could have meant as he addressed Moshe that day. So, let's go to the text, and then I want to offer an explanation. All right? The section that we're going to open up with is entitled, What's in a Name? And I should add that I do have a commentary written, as I've mentioned in last week's commentary, uh, in last week's podcast, I do have a commentary called, What's in a Name? And it's a lengthy, I don't know, 24-page, something like that, um, uh, study on the name of God and the revelation of the name, and it even deals with, well, it it goes into topics such as... um, um, yod heh vav the circumlocutives, um, the misspelling of God's name, like G-D or L-R-D, the purposeful uh, misspelling of God's name, or and or it deals with the SNOs, the sacred name only, those who feel that we should, must uh, say God's name as approximated in the Hebrew. All of those topics are covered 
in the commentary what's in a name so feel free to go to the website it is at um, of course graftedin.com and then you can go to uh, what is it click on on commentaries off the home page and then scroll down to the more lessons link click on that and it is alphabetized well it's down near the bottom of the list it's called um, what's in a name alright let's talk about this week's tour portion let me go back to my commentary here. I'm actually online as I'm, I'm doing these uh, podcasts, so I'm reading the commentary for you uh, and dramatizing it, I guess you could say. What's in a name? The opening statement of Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 3 reads, and I'll read the English translation as rendered from David Stern's version, and then I'm going to read the Hebrew for you. Um, and this time I've included in my commentary, the written commentary, a transliterated Hebrew. Some of you who listen to my podcasts like the Hebrew that you're hearing, and I'm pleased to hear that. Um, and yet you've asked that I put more transliterated Hebrew for those of you who can't read the Hebrew script. Transliterated Hebrew uses Latin alphabet, English letters. And for those of you who can speak Spanish, it uses the same vowel sounds. So if you can read English and you're slightly familiar with the way Spanish vowels work, then transliterated, transliterated Hebrew shouldn't be that hard for you. So here we go. English. Gen, uh, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses. I'm sorry, this is David Stern's version. God spoke to Moshe. He said to him, I am Adonai. I appeared to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as El Shaddai, although I did not make myself known to them by my name, yud Hey vav Hey. And in brackets, David Stern adds the word Adonai again. End quote. I like David Stern's version in that he gives us some transliterated Hebrew right there. Let's read the actual Hebrew text. Let me read this for you straight out of a uh, Tanakh or out of a Torah scroll. Um, it reads, Elohim el Moshe, elive ani Adonai, el Avraham el ve'el Yaakov be'el Shaddai, ushmi Adonai lo noda'ati lahem. Now, um, by the way, when I said Adonai in that Hebrew, understand that the word Adonai that I'm saying is yod heh vav I suppose I should say Yahweh or Yahweh or something to that approximation, but I'm not trying to confuse you. At any rate, if you take Hashem's statement here in this verse, at face value alone, where he says, I did not reveal myself as yod heh vav to the patriarchs, if you take it at face value alone and compare it to the words spoken to Avraham in, for instance, Genesis chapter 15, verse 7, well then, at face value, there seems to be a contradiction. Now, we know God is not contradicting himself, so obviously there's more to the text than what we're seeing. But at least we're, we're allowed to start at face value and work our way from there. That's a good way to exegete the passage. Start with the raw data. What does the verse say, including all the words and the... Um, punctuation if any what does the word say or what does the verse say and then work from there towards uh, exegeting the passage breaking it down along its um, uh, meaningful lines so indeed as we examine the original Hebrew text we'll notice something particular now let me read Genesis 15 verse 7 this time I'm going to go out of order I'm going to read the Hebrew first and then I will read the English translation 
the Hebrew says, Vayumer elayv ani Adonai, asher hotzeiticha mi'ur chasdim latet lacha et ha'eretz hazot l'rishta. And the English says, quote, Adonai said to him, I am Adonai who brought you out from Ur Kasdim to give you this land as a possession. End quote. Now again, where the text says um, Adonai, Vayumer Eli, Vani Adonai, um, the, the, the Hebrew has the Tetragrammaton letters YHVH or Yadhe So we know that this is Hashem speaking to Avraham and he's telling him that I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees, or Ur Chastim. And what's interesting is that it, it says, I am Adonai, Ani Adonai. Um, and of course the Hebrew Ani Adonai is Ani, uh, Aleph Nun Yud for Ani, and then Yud He Vav He for Adonai. So right away in the Pashat, or in the uh, uh, f- at face value, in, in the natural, the Lord is saying to Abraham, I am Yodhei Vavhei. And yet, now we have to compare this to what God just said to Moshe in our opening Parsha, in our opening Pasuk. He says, uh, I did not reveal myself to the patriarchs as Yodhei Vavhei. So, that's where the quote-unquote apparent contradiction comes in. Now again, we know that Hashem is giving us more, and so that's why we have to dig a little bit deeper. For people who don't understand that that's what's happening in the text, they may rally a charge against the Torah and say that, that God doesn't make any sense. He's lying or he was mistaken or something like that, but far from it. All right, so as you can see from the original Hebrew along with my transliteration, if you're looking at the uh, written commentary there, you can see in the transliteration of the Hebrew text that Hashem addresses Avraham here using the name yod So how then could the statement in our current parasha that Hashem did not reveal his name yod be true? In fact, to complicate the matter, in his conversation with Hashem, Avraham's that is, during the negotiations about destroying Saddam and Amorah, and you can reference Genesis 18, verse 20 through verse 32. That's where, that's in a parashat, um, uh, gosh, I can't remember the name of the parasha there off the top of my head. But anyway, um, uh, I think it's Chai Sarah. But, uh, uh, Hashem and Avraham are having this discussion, and it's where the three visitors show up, and Avraham feeds them. And then uh, the two angels depart and go off towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and they're going to destroy it. Well, anyway, we find Avraham specifically addressing Hashem as Yodhevavhe four times. So not only do we have Hashem telling Avraham, Ani Adonai, or Ani Yodhevavhe, but we also have Avraham responding to him and calling him yod So it adds to the further mystery behind what could God be alluding to by saying to Moshe, I did not reveal myself as yod So our answer to the question lies in what we discussed last week in Parashat Shemot. So, for teaching purposes and for those of you who didn't catch last week's uh, podcast, I'm going to paraphrase from last week's portion, okay? Listen up. In Hebrew thought, we talked about this. In Hebrew thought, the name of an individual is the embodiment or the character of that individual. And it's based upon who they are or what they have done, or as we're learning in the case with Hashem, what they will do. 
you recall that many times in the ancient Near East, whenever parents would have a child, they would name the child according to either perhaps circumstances surrounding their birth, such as the case of Benjamin, um, who was named by the mom. Uh, first she called him Benoni, and then the father called him Binyamin. Um, or sometimes people are named or renamed, such as the case of Yaakov changing his name to Israel. People are named or renamed after the circumstances surrounding a significant change in their life. Perhaps a spiritual call in their life uh, goes into effect and God renames them, such as Abraham or, or, as I already mentioned, Jacob. At any rate, names are not merely monikers or titles uh, that, that people give. They're not meaningless. Uh, far from it. They're actually very meaningful, at least in the Near Eastern uh, mindset. So, based on who they are, or what they have done, or in the case of Hashem, what they're going to do. Names are very important. Now, in Exodus 3.14, Shemot 3.14, Hashem reveals his nature to Moshe in a way that has never been done before in the Torah up to this point. And you recall there's a conversation between Moshe and Hashem in chapter 3 of this book. Moshe specifically asks Hashem, what is your name? What shall I tell the leaders of Israel, the children of Israel, who sent me? Hashem tells Moshe in, this, in, this, in that passage that his name shall be referred to as, and the Hebrew says, Echeh Asher Echeh, which David Stern translates as, I am slash will be what I am slash will be. End quote. Most English versions render it either I am that I am, some English versions rendered, I will be what I will be, something to that effect. Hashem continues in verse 15 of chapter 3 to say that the God of their fathers, Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, is to be remembered forever as yod vav And that's, in my opinion, just very, very important for God to say that to Moshe, that, that he is to be remembered as yod vav Now, as I mentioned last week, this appears to be very strange until we understand that Hashem is about to deliver his people in a way that he has never before performed. He is going to bring about a deliverance in the lives of the children of Israel that up to this point we have not read about in the Torah. We've not seen it. Not only is he going to do this, but he will forever be remembered for this deliverance. So the name yod heh is going to be attached forever to this revelation that Moshe is going to participate in and take part in. Indeed, Moshe is going to be uh, have a front seat, a front row seat, because he's going to be leading it. Now, this is why, in my opinion, and in, in the opinions of other sages, this is why the phrase, I am, if your rendering says I am, in my opinion, it may not be the best rendering of the Hebrew phrase, Echyeh, because the phrase, rather, carries with it, Echyeh, carries with it the idea that Hashem is about to be or about to perform a mighty work never before witnessed by his people. In other words, to render Ehye as I am doesn't capture the force of the narrative there. Uh, instead, it makes more sense for Hashem to be kind of saying to Moshe, I will be. And just so you know where I'm getting um, my authority for rendering it that way, I can simply turn to the sages of old. In this case, I, I think their rendering was right on. Rashbam. Um, as cited by Bakor Shor, confirms the possible translation of, quote, he causes to be. In other words, taking the Hebrew word ech, uh, and casting it into a future word rather than making it a, a present tense I am. Let's quote 
let's cite the uh, Bakor Shore here. Actually, I'm quoting from um, Sarna's JPS Commentary to Exodus, the Jewish Publication Society, JPS. Uh, 1991 is when they published it, and I'm going to quote from page 17 and 18. Here's what Sarna has to say. Quote, Echyeh asher echyeh. This phrase has been variously, uh, this phrase has variously been translated, quote, I am that I am, end quote, quote, I am who I am, end quote, and, quote, I will be what I will be, end quote. And again, just as a side note, Sarna's just noticed, uh, making note that of the exact same thing that I said. The phrase can be translated a few different ways because of the, it's not that the Hebrew is ambiguous, but rather, um, God's not only working with the Hebrew, but he's working with the theology behind the wording itself. Um, so that's why we have the various translations. It's not that the Hebrew, the ancients don't know what tenses they're in. Uh, Sarna goes on to say, It clearly evokes yod heh the specific proper name of Israel's God, known in English as the Tetragrammaton, that is, four consonants. The phrase also indicates that the earliest recorded understanding of the divine name was a verb derived from the stem HVH, the letters Hey Vav Hey, or as Mark McClellan would say, Hey Yud Hey, I'm sorry, Hey uh, Wav Hey, because uh, there's every reason to believe that ancient Hebrew, uh, Paleo uh, Hebrew, used a Wa sound instead of a Vav. But at any rate, Sarna goes on to say that the verb is derived from the stem HVH, or hey vav hey, taken as an earlier form of hey yud hey, which means to be. So, either it, either it expresses the quality of absolute being, the eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence, or it means, quote, he causes to be, end quote. Yud Hey Vav Hey or YHVH is the th- and th- this is interesting so listen up pull up your antennas and really grab this Yud Hey Vav Hey or YHVH is the third person masculine singular whereas Ehye is the corresponding first person singular did you catch that the latter that is to say, eh, yeah, is used here because name-giving in the ancient world implied the wielding of power over the one named. Hence, the divine name, the first person, singular, can only proceed from God himself. End quote. Now, isn't that neat? It, it lets us know that when God says, eh, yeah, by the word, the Hebrew word, asher, is that which is, or which. So really, we're just talking about the word Echyeh, which is on the bookends. Echyeh with Asher in the middle. I can look up any... I, in fact, let me just turn to it right here. I've got a Hebrew, English, English, Hebrew dictionary. I'm just going to look up the word Asher for you real quick, just to show you that we already know what that word means. I know what it means, but I want I want to look it up for you and tell you, just so you can know that I'm not making this up on my own. Here we are. On the Hebrew, English dictionary, which is put out by Modern uh, Modan Publishing House Limited. Uh, published by, uh, I'm sorry, um, compiled by uh, Dov Ben Abba. This dictionary defines the word asher as, quote, that who, which, that which, as to, or regarding. All right. So, really, let's just translate it, which. So we have asher, which, ehyeh. 
uh, I'm sorry, ehye, which ehye. So if we translate ehye as I am, which I am, or I will be, which I will be, or I am that, something that effect, well then what we're saying is that in the first person singular, God says, when the, when the words come out of his mouth, he says ehye, that's first person singular, I am, or I will be. But when Moshe repeats God's words to the people, because there's this notion that the 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 um, name giving implied the wielding of power over the one being named, we don't want to put Moshe in a position where he's wielding power over Hashem, as if to suggest, God forbid, that Moshe is giving God his name or supplying God with a name, much the way that a parent would give their name to a baby or supply that name. That's not what's taking place. So instead, the Hebrew drops down to Moshe using the third person singular. And that's what yod Hey vav Hey is. It's the third person masculine singular. So really, yod Hey vav Hey is he will be or he is. Does that make sense to you now? I hope it does. Ehye is first person singular, I am. Yahweh is third person singular, he is. And so every time Moshe speaks of God, when he addresses uh, Am Yisrael, he's really saying to him, he is or he will be has said this to me or he will be spoke to me. Whereas when God speaks directly, it's I am. And yet there still lies confusion confusion today. So, I hope this helps to explain why Hashem can seemingly or can make a seemingly odd statement like the one he made in the opening two verses of our current parasha. He had not yet been revealed to his people including Father Abraham as quote, the God who delivered you from the bondage of Egypt, end quote. Does that make sense? yod heh or I will be makes more sense uh, um, um, factually or, or experientially or, or empirically to Moshe and the children of Israel because they are the ones who are in the mess. Avraham was not in Egypt, in, in bondage, I should say. And so, as I'm going to make a quote later on from Sarna again, we're going to see that the name means much more to Moshe now than per se it may have meant to Avraham back then if I can dare to say that and, and get away with it. Now, going back to this name, why was this title so important for Moshe to grasp and for the children of Israel to grasp? I just explained it. Hashem was revealing an aspect of his character that would later play a very important role in the identity of the Jewish people as a nation. This title, this name, would also serve as a reminder to the surrounding nations that, quote, with a great Outstretched arm, Adonai Yudhevavhe, Adonai Almighty delivered his beloved people. I am their deliverer. End quote. Now, if you think about it, God could not have said that until it happened. He could not have explained that to Avraham and it, and and have it. Uh, uh, impact Avraham the same way that it's going to impact Moshe and the children of Israel from here on out. Because God is working along with history to reveal himself to his people. And through the deliverance from Egypt, he can now say to Israel, I am the one who delivered you. I am the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And yet, 
he could not say that until the event happened. I'm not trying to say that that dispensationalism is the key to understanding these verses here. Rather, I'm simply saying that God works with history, and history is linear. It's moving along in a in a in a, in a path that man cannot alter. Um, and so, as history unfolds before our very eyes, of which, of course, God is in control, then we see and understand that God's name reveals the character of his deliverance. Now, to be sure, the reference of Hashem as the God who delivered them from the bondage of Egypt, this title itself, would become a, quote, household name of sorts, end quote. It really is. In fact, if you fast forward in the book of Shemot, of Exodus, to the Ten Commandments, say, turn to Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, you'll see that you can find this phrase used to identify Hashem. I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. Also, if you thumb through the rest of your Tanakh, or, or Old Testament for those of you who don't know what Tanakh is, if you thumb through the rest of your Tanakh, you'll find that this phrase is used numerous times. I am the God who delivered you from Egypt. So, let's keep going. Let, let me, um, at this point in time, make a messianic application, just briefly insert a messianic application uh, for those of us who believe in Messiah. Um, as believers in Messiah Yeshua, we know that this is one of the primary character traits of Hashem which unifies the Messiah and the Godhead, if I could use a uh, an ancient uh, KJV term, which unifies the Messiah and the Godhead as an Echad, that is, as one. The Hebrew word Echad uh, relates to unity. The name of the Messiah is related to the Hebrew name Yehoshua, or Joshua, which itself, Yehoshua, stems from the Hebrew name Hosea, or Hosea. In fact, Joshua's original name is Hosea, and you'll find that jo- that uh, Moses renames him Yehoshua, or Joshua. Well, both of these names are composites of the two Hebrew words for God, and will save. Yaho and Shua, or Yahoshua. So we have God will save wrapped up in the name Yahoshua. These phrases make up the name Joshua. And when we combine this knowledge with the fact that it is yod heh vav God, who offers us salvation from sin through Yeshua the Messiah, then we can begin to understand the significance of the type and shadow that the exodus from Egypt plays in our lives as new creations. Does that make sense? God saves us as believers, as Christians, as, as uh, participants in the body. But it is through the Son that God saves us. Yeshua, Jesus, is the salvation agent of God. He is the, he is the um, operative salvation agent of God. He is the... Um, objective uh, salvation agent of God. We cannot simply place our trust in God generically and, and allow it to work. It doesn't work that way, or expect it to work. God saves us through his Son. And therefore, Jesus is salvation, and that's what his name uh, conveys. That's why the angel Gabriel told Miriam, you are to name him Jesus, or Yeshua, because he will save their people, his people from their sins. Very good. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go back to Sarna. Uh, quote from the JPS commentary. I want to take this idea that God has um, has not yet revealed Himself as Yod Vav the God who will deliver them, and further develop that just a bit. All right, here's the quote from Sarna. Quote: 
were this statement, the statement that God had not revealed himself to Abraham, were this statement that a previously unknown divine name, Yodhei is now to be revealed for the first time, were this statement to mean that a previously unknown divine name, Yodhei is now to be revealed for the first time, the effort of the, quote, I am formula would be vitiated. And Sarna goes on to say that the credibility of a promise is undermined, not enhanced, if it is issued by one whose name is unfamiliar. Furthermore, the phrase, quote, I am Yahweh, or Yodhei in quote, appears scores of times in the Bible and is widespread in corresponding form in Northwest Semitic royal inscriptions, such as I am Mesha. That's one place that they show it. There's another one that says, I am Shalmaneser. Uh, these are uh, quotes from um, other gods, or uh, ostensible gods. And there's another one that says, quote, I am Esarhaddon. End quote. Anyway, Sarna goes on to say then, it cannot therefore reflect the introduction of a new name. So, we're exegeting the passage is what we're doing. We're looking at God saying to Abraham, I am and then God, a book later, saying to Moshe, I didn't reveal myself to Abraham as Yodhei And we're understanding now what God's really saying. So, uh, Sarna goes on to say, On the contrary, precisely because the bearer of the name is well known, and its mention evokes such emotions as awe, reverence, honor, and fear, its use as the source and sanction of a law or edict reinforces its authority and encourages compliance. In the present context, the invocation of a hitherto unknown divine name would hardly serve to counteract the widespread demoralization, which is, after all, the very function of God's declaration. Sarna goes on to say, in light of these considerations, the meaning of this verse needs to be re-examined. In ancient Near Eastern world, I'm sorry, in the ancient Near Eastern world, names in general, and the name of a god in particular, possessed a dynamic quality and were expressive of character or attributes and potency. The names of gods were immediately identified with their nature, status, and function. So that to say, quote, I did not make myself known to them by my name, Yodhei-Vavhei, end quote, is to state that the patriarchs did not experience the essential power associated with the name Yodhei-Vavhei. The promises made to them belonged to the distant future. The present reiteration of those promises exclusively in the name of Yodhei-Vavhei means that their fulfillment is is eminent. And Sarna concludes by saying that this indeed is how Rashi, Rashbam, Bakorshor, and others construed verses 2 through 3. End quote. So, that's lifted again from the JPS commentary, this time from page 31. So, now that we have explained how that Avraham did not know this aspect of Hashem, embodied in the name Echeh, Asher Echeh, rather, since we've explained it, you could say that Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov knew Hashem as, quote, the covenant-keeping God, end quote. Instead, Hashem chose to reveal himself in this manner to Israel's offspring, 
Moreover, in the opening few pasukim, uh, the opening few verses of our parasha this week, Hashem informs Moshe that he has remembered his covenant with Avraham, with Isaac, and with Yaakov. Read chapter 6, verse 5, which I believe provides a very nice tie-in to both of Hashem's reputations. He is remembered as the covenant-keeping God, and he's going to be remembered as the God who delivers them from Egypt. And in fact, I combine the reputations or the names by saying that because he keeps covenant, he will deliver them. That's what I mean by the combination there. All right. Moving along in our parasha, a very interesting genealogical list appears in chapter 6, verses 14 through 30. And at first glance, it seems to be sort of out of place with the narrative flow, if you, if, if you just look at it and wonder out loud. We must remember that the people were greatly discouraged as a result of the cruel forced labor, and that they, as ordinary human beings, were subject to doubt and disappointment. In fact, read chapter 6, verse 9. I believe that the list appears early on in the story to sort of, quote, validate the authority of Moshe and his prophet brother Aaron, or Aharon. In fact, Moshe, the human author of the book of Shemot, seems to indicate this this detail of their ministry more than once uh, in verses 26 and 27 of the same chapter. In other words, there should be no mistake for us, and but chiefly for them back then, uh, but there should be no mistake as to exactly who were Moshe and Aharon. All right. This next section is entitled Plagues. This next section that we're going to talk about is familiar to many of you, both Christian and Jew alike, especially people who have uh, gone through a Passover Seder. The ten plagues of Egypt play an important and familiar part of the exodus from Egypt, and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about them in my commentary. To be sure, as the Jewish people have so carefully preserved for nearly four millennia, they are, the plagues, an interesting part of any average Pesach Seder which is a Passover dinner and ceremony of today. What most non-Jewish believers might not know is that each plague actually singled out a specific Egyptian deity for judgment from Hashem. Isn't that neat? The, and uh, I'm going to share with you something that the talented web servant of, of uh, MessianicArt.com, uh, Talmud Benjamin Burton, who's a very good friend of mine, as well as my first web partner on, on, on uh, Internet sites, um, he brought the following information to my attention. Quote, By way of an overview, this is a look at all ten plagues and the deities that they judged. Now, I apologize right up front. I don't know exactly how, how to pronounce each deity uh, in the Egyptian, but I'm just going to assume that the Egyptian is similar, being a Semitic language, is similar to Hebrew, so I'm going to pronounce them as if I would be reading transliterated Hebrew, okay? Number one, the Nile plague judged Hun, um, uh, let me see. Let me read that again. The Nile plague judged Chnum, Sati, Hapi, Osiris, or Osiris, as we would say, Hathor, Nath, Sobek, and Apepi. <laughs> Those are the, the the Egyptian deities that the first plague judged. Number two, the second plague, the frog plague, it judged the creator goddess Heka, or Hika, I believe. Number three, the lice plague judged Seth. Geb, Ra, and Osiris. Um, the fourth plague, the flies plague, judged Vathit, Beelzebub, and the scarab beetle, or Beelzebub is what you would read in English. Number five, the deadly moraine. That judged Pata, Apis, 
Hathor and Osiris again. We're seeing multiple judgments on Osiris there because he's one of the chief gods. Number six, the Boils Plague. That judged Ptah, Osiris, Sechmet, Imhotep, Serapis, and the Egyptian priesthood, as well as the ritual of casting ashes. Number seven, the Hail Plague judged Nut, Geb, Amun-Ra, Osiris, and Pharaoh himself. The eighth plague, the Locust Plague, judged Sobek, Ra, Shu, Geb, and Osiris. Number nine, the Darkness Plague judged Nut, Hathor, Amun-Ra, and the Egyptian priesthood. And then finally, number ten, the Death of the Firstborn, judged Heka, or Hika, Isis, Min, Horus, Bes, Seker, and the Pharaoh, again himself. And that's the end of the quote from um, MessianicArt.com and Ptolemy Benjamin Burton. So, if we understand that each plague represented a judgment on a specific Egyptian deity, then we see Hashem, we see that Hashem was truly demonstrating to the most powerful ruler of the most powerful nation of that day that he is Lord of all heaven and earth. God was sending a very strong and unmistakable symbol or a signal to the Pharaoh. In fact, to this end, Adonai proclaimed to Moshe. Uh, let me read a quote from chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. Quote, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt with great acts of judgment. Then when I stretch out my hand over Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them, the Egyptians will know that I am Adonai. Isn't that interesting? God is interested in revealing himself not only to his people, but to the wicked rulers of that day. God wants all people to come to a knowledge of himself. Therefore, he gives everyone a chance. It's unfortunate that the Pharaoh of old hardened his heart to God's request, and because of that, God judged him. Once again, as was stated in Parshat Shemot, Hashem is highly interested in demonstrating and making known his mighty reputation. In essence, his name. Remember the Hebrew word shame um, is the word name. And in other words, he's, he's not only interested in the offspring of Israel, but to the surrounding wicked nations as well. Um, in this case, as we read the story, Egypt would become the first in an ongoing series of, dem- of demonstrations involving pagan nations in Am Yisrael. In fact, you can reference Daniel chapter 7, verses 3 through 7, to read a prophecy concerning the first four in this series. You can also read Revelation chapter 17, verse 10. This is for you prophecy buffs. um, To understand that there would be eight oppressive kingdoms, people who oppressed Israel. Uh, There's eight kingdoms in all. All right, let's move on. This next section is entitled, Choosing Freedom. The story of the deliverance from Egypt is meant to remind all of God's true children those who have joined him in covenant faithfulness, that Hashem and Hashem alone is worthy to be praised as the great and mighty deliverer. Israel was singled out to be the victims of cruel and unjust suffering so that the surrounding nations would learn about the awesome, saving power of the Holy One. Even though the Pharaoh's pride and stubbornness caused them to become the epitome of the enemy of God, and even though, as we shall read in the next week's portion, Eventually, his advisors and magicians came to the realization that this, quote, invisible God of the Hebrews, end quote, was responsible for the ruin of the land of Egypt. 
You can reference chapter 8, verse 18, as well as chapter 19. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verses 18 and 19, as well as chapter 24. Uh, let's try that again. Reference Exodus chapter 8, verse 18, 19, and the last half of verse 24. Reference that for uh, the, the, the information I just gave to you about the um, Egyptian rulers realizing that, that this, this was out of their control. At any rate, Hashem wanted to send a clear and unmistakable signal to all who shall read this account that it is Hashem who is without equal and that it is also Hashem who makes a distinction between those who are his own and those who are not. Amen? Amen. But don't just take my word for it. Let's read the Torah for ourselves. Let's pull a quote. Since I made such a big point of mentioning chapter 8, let me just pull a quote there. Chapter 8, verse 22 and 23, quote, But I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people live, so that you can realize that I am Adonai right here in the land. Yes, I will distinguish between my people and your people. And the emphasis was mine there, end quote. And also, look at chapter 9, verse 14, quote, For this time I will inflict my plagues on you, yourself, and on your officials, and your people, so that you will realize that I am without equal in all the earth, end quote. That is a powerful statement when we consider that Hashem is speaking to the most powerful ruler of the earth that day, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And, considering that ancient Egypt was a pantheon of gods and had multiple deities, here is the true deity speaking to the ruler of Egypt and letting him know that he, God, is without equal. Now, we just kind of brush this truth aside today because we, we as believers say to ourselves, of course God is without equal. But to say that to the, to the man Pharaoh back then must have been a shocker. At any rate, in fact, just so that there would be no mistaking, you know, the Pharaoh was pretty stubborn as were his officials, just so that there would be no mistaking that it was Hashem who was singling out Israel and Egypt for his mighty purposes, Hashem instructed Moshe to f inform the Pharaoh of this significant detail about the plagues. Listen up. I'm going to quote from um, chapter 9, verse 15 through 17. Quote, this is God speaking. By now, I could have destroyed I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with such severe plagues that you would have been wiped off the earth. But it is for this very reason that I've kept you alive, to show you my mighty power. And so that my name, there's that word shame again, my name may resound throughout the whole earth. End quote. In my estimation, this is one of the most profound statements in all of the Torah. For in this single statement, in that verse above there, we see the sovereignty, terrible judgment, and great mercy of our heavenly Abba in a single sweeping event. The parasha leaves off without concluding all of the ten plagues. So we'll have to wait for next week. Well, at least for next week's portion, to read of the awesome and terrible conclusion. At any rate, what can we gather from this week's portion? Well, for starters, 
if our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is, then his attributes of sovereignty, judgment of evil, and unfathomable mercy are constants that we can establish and build our relationship with upon. Our relationship with him is based on the the unchangeable nature of our God. Because he doesn't change, we can place our trust and our confidence in this God of ours. Concerning his sovereignty, we learned in previous portions, remember Yosef, that even in the midst of the most seemingly impossible situations, Hashem is behind the scenes, orchestrating and causing all things to accomplish the master plan that he has designed them to accomplish. Concerning his judgment, we see that the pattern is developed throughout the entire Tanakh. That, um, and what is that pattern? That willful disobedience, stubbornness, pride, rebellion, idolatry, injustice, etc. These are the things which bring the judgment of Hashem upon us. Concerning his mercy, we find that with the first coming of his son Yeshua 2,000 years ago came the ultimate expression of the Father's heart toward a race, the humans, that in every respect we humans deserved the hell fires of Gehinom. Reference Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. Today, we have as much of a choice as the Pharaoh had during his initial encounters with Hashem and his spokesman, Moshe and Aharon. Shall we close our hearts in stubbornness and pride, possibly prompting Hashem to confirm the hardness and stubbornness of our self-hardened heart? Or shall we instead open up our hearts to the wonderful good news that even though we deserve the judgment, Hashem, the Torah has demonstrated in word and in the power of His only begotten Son that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Reference Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 out of the KJV. If this meant even the Pharaoh of Moshe's day, then obviously it means us as well. The mercy of Hashem has been perfectly demonstrated for us in one of the most beloved and well-known scriptures in the Torah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, rendered from the KJV. The closing blessing is as follows. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Emet Olam Nata Batochinu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have selected us. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.
That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com or visit our website at graftedin.com that's graftedin.com